We're going to begin with prayer this morning, and we're going to climb into Hebrews 11. Let's pray. God, I am, uh, first of all, uh, we want to lift up another church, another pastor and his family. I want to pray for Matt Beasley this morning and for his uh, marriage, for his parenting and his, his family's uh, just dynamic at home that they are enjoying you. I pray that his time and study is fueling that, that he is uh, finding connections at home, uh, faith connections, and walking in what he's studying first, that uh, his family gets it first, and that that's spilling over onto a people. And pray that Ridgecrest Baptist Church is uh, enjoying the walk together, that they're being well-equipped for a real meaningful walk of faith. Um, pray that you are growing discipling, um, salty, bright, and aromatic folks. And uh, we're thankful for the relationship that we have with Ridgecrest and thankful for um, the years that we've had to serve alongside each other in this community. Lord, I pray that whatever way that we need to um, grow in that, that we would be attentive to that. Uh, we cheer for great things, uh, for kingdom advancement through their ministry. And we pray that whatever way we can complement that work, that we will be faithful to do that. Lord, uh, in regards to this people, I first of all, in their presence, want to um, just thank you for raising up such a remarkable, responsive, faithful, big-hearted, and open-handed people. I'm so thankful for the needs that you put in front of us, like the Brays, and the Hickses, little Micah, little Oliver. I'm thankful for ways that you stretch us and challenge us, like a frightening notion of a church plant where we lose families to a new church and a new place. I'm thankful for dangerous things that you call us to that stretch us. We have an opportunity to exercise faith. And I feel feel quite blessed to walk with this people. Lord, I pray that you will be enjoyed in these next few minutes. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's turn to Hebrews 11. This summer we've been in Hebrews 11, camping out in some ways, considering the heroes of the chapter. Are these lights where they normally are right now? Kill them? Okay, let's turn them down. They I have my way of things where I need, you know. I got needs up here. That's one of them. <clears throat> I also have like bronchitis or something, so I'm going to try not to cough in this thing. If I do, then you're just going to have to uh, just forgive me. I, I get, you don't have to forgive me, but I'll ask you in advance. I'll do my best to manage this with hot coffee and talking quietly. Hebrews chapter 11, we've been camped out in this summer considering the he heroes of this chapter. And it's been a wonderful summer to see what faith looks like. Leading up to Hebrews chapter 11, the Hebrews author, we don't know who it was, the Hebrews author, but likely the pastor of this church we believe to be in Rome, has been encouraging his people, in some ways galvanizing his people, with the realities of Christ as high priest, Christ is better than the angels, Christ is better than Moses, Christ is better than Joshua. It's been a remarkable journey up to chapter 11. 
And then in chapter 11, he blesses them with a handful of wonderful illustrations of what faith looks like. And that's what we've been doing over the course of the summer, the faith series, looking at each of these heroes one at a time, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, <coughs> Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak. This morning, we're going to not finish out the chapter, not quite. We're going to cover chapter, the, the verses 32 through 38. So in some ways, this Sunday is going to be sort of a cleanup of the chapter. And these last and final people that are mentioned, these last stories that are mentioned, we're going to gather those things up together, and we're going to hopefully consider this morning. And I hope I want you to consider this question as we begin this morning. What do you expect from faith? What in your mind, in your heart, in your moments where you're maybe struggling with something and you're thinking about how faith plays out, what do you expect will be the outcome if you are faithful? I want you to ask that question of yourself in sort of a diagnostic way before we continue this morning, because you may be in for a surprise this morning of how faithfulness can play out. We're going to unpack these verses in three little chunks. Here's your map for the morning. We're going to look at verse 32 by itself. Then we're going to look at verses 33 through 35a. And then the third section we're going to look at is verses 35b through verse 38. We're going to sort of unpack the stories. We're not going to go into any great detail on all of them. A couple of them we're going to camp out on for good reason. You'll see why. But we're going to sort of gather up the stories that the Hebrews church would have been thinking of as they're hearing these names and they're hearing these details. And we're going to land the plane this morning with three thoughts and three applications that we can walk away with from this message. The title of the message this morning, as you may see unfold as the way it goes, is Faith in the Winds and Faith in the, and I'm putting air quotes here that people won't hear on audio, but they want to hear them in their head, air quotes around losses. And you'll understand why in a moment. I'm going to read the section in total first, and then we're going to start unpacking the luggage, beginning in verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Let's go back to verse 32 and start unpacking. 
Verse 32, and what more shall we say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. This was an ancient Greek literary device to call attention to something by seeming to pass over it. It's really pretty cool if you think about it. In some ways, what he's doing is just mentioning these people as if he's passing over them. But what he's emphasizing with this ancient Greek literary device is he's emphasizing what has been omitted, what is implied behind each of those names and their stories. And in some ways, it's an encouragement to go explore to the Hebrews church, and it should be to us, to go explore their stories, to look for faith in their stories. I thought about what a lob for us as a church right now. Here we are moving into the fall. What a lob for a bunch of shepherds. A bunch of dads are functional shepherds. If you're the spiritually single mother or you're a single mom, what a lob for you for 2015 to obey this literary device. To heed this literary device, the intention of the Hebrews preacher, and to spend yourself in 2015 studying these men that we have not preached on, that we stopped. If you paid attention, the last one that we considered was Barak. So served up for you for 2015, where shepherds you could be preparing between now and January 1st, are Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. What a treat you would have as families in 2015, not being reactive shepherds and trying to deal with the aftermath of bad decisions in your family, but sowing truth into them intentionally as a shepherd of your family, leading your family in study and in prayer. I'm going to tell you right now, I can be the laziest dad with the best of them. I can be lazy with the the worst of you. But this is a challenge for you, and I'm going to heed the challenge with you in 2015. And I personally, as a shepherd of my family, not for preparation for the church, but as a shepherd of my family in 2015, want to study these cleanup folks and want to, as a family, consider what faith looks like in the lives of Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. What a treat you would have in 2015. I encourage you to consider that. I do this morning want to briefly consider faith in these folks. They're going to get about two sentences apiece. So we're going to move very quickly. We're not even going to look at any passages this morning having to do with these cleanup folks. We're going to move on to the stories here in a second. But Samson, there's some things you're going to find as you study these people. If you take up this challenge in 2015... Some things you're going to find. You're going to find in Samson, the strongest man in the Bible. But in some ways, the weakest man. You're going to find a man that made a lot of bad decisions, but a man that throughout, even throughout his bad decisions, had a consistent view of being God's instrument against the enemies of Israel, and especially the Philistines, to his very last moment. In Jephthah, You're going to find a story of a man that in some ways was sort of the excluded kid in the family because he was the product of his dad stepping out with a prostitute. You can imagine how the real siblings treated him. I mean, this guy was an outcast. But he ends up being the leader of the Transjordanian armies. The Transjordanian armies were those two tribes and the half-tribe that stayed on the other side of the Jordan when everybody else crossed. They helped with the conquest, but then they came back to the other side of the Jordan and camped out. Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. 
he led those armies against the Ammonites. And this guy is notorious for making a rash vow that likely cost the life of his daughter. But one thing that's true about this man, Jephthah, he was wholly devoted to the God of Israel. And you'll see that if you launch off into the study of Jephthah. David is a familiar man to us. You can probably think of a number of stories in your mind right now, stories of faith having to do with David, and you have to also consider that he was also an adulterer and a murderer. But he was a man after God's own heart. And the stories of faith in his life abound. Samuel. If you study Samuel in 2015, you're going to find a man that's called from the very few, from the very first days serving in the tabernacle that's set up in Shiloh. He's called. You remember that call where God calls him and he runs to Eli from his very first moments. He's called throughout his life. He's called in as the emergency rescue man. He calls in, he's called in to be clean cleanup guy at the end of the judges in the darkest moments of Israel. And his life modeled faith from his earliest days in the tabernacle till his farewell address in 1 Samuel 12. And then there's the prophets, man. You want a wonderful study in 2015. Study the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Elijah, Elisha, Amos, Hosea, the others. You will see wonderful faithfulness from these men. Let's continue with a catalog of wins in our passage. Starting in verse 33... I'm going to read 33 through 35a again. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. There's a wonderful list of victories there. Wonderful list of what we can call in the next few minutes wins. Clearly big uppercase W's. One right after another. Each of these phrases would have conjured up and summoned up a story for these Hebrews, the Hebrew Christians. These folks have been saturated in the Old Testament as the preacher and pastor of the church was obviously saturated in the Old Testament stories. And just a phrase would have taken them to a story or a name, in some cases, a number of stories and a number of names. We're going to spend the next few minutes just connecting to some possibilities for each of these phrases, considering this catalog of wins. First, there's a little grouping here of three things that sort of go together. The first grouping, through faith, they conquered kingdoms, they enforced justice, they obtained promises. These are likely a summary of the types of things that Samson, we can say Gideon and Barak also, but Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets experienced. Plenty of conquering, Plenty of justice enforced. There are some judges that are mentioned in there. And plenty of promises obtained. You're going to be victorious. The outcome is going to go your way because I'm fighting the battle for you. The next grouping all have to do, a grouping of three has to have to do with near-death experiences. Listen to them. Through faith, the mouths of lions were stopped. 
Now, you don't have to think hard. Chances are your little one that's sitting next to you can think about that occasion and that name connecting to a man named Daniel. It doesn't only connect to Daniel. It connects to David, too. There's some ancient history that says that David was a lion killer protecting his sheep. There are others. It could connect to Samson, another killer of lions, lion slayer. But likely this would make a beeline in your mind in the Hebrews church to a faithful man named Daniel. And I personally am glad to see Daniel in the Hero of Faith chapter. Not named by name, but he's named by story. And just a phrase that summoned the story. The next thing, through faith, they quenched the power of fire. You don't have to think hard there either. Chances are your kid, your little one can think of that story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This morning, I would offer that we stop calling them Babylonian names this morning, and I'll deal with this a little bit more later just because I have affection for them. It'd be like somebody abducting you and naming you Umfufu and you, somebody continuing to call you Umfufu. Their names were not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their names were Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. We're going to tell their stories later at the end of the morning. But these guys braved the hottest furnace in Babylon. Wonderful story of faith. And through faith, they escaped the edge of the sword. David escaped Saul on a number of occasions. More often than not, that was a spear rather than sword. Elijah escaped Jezebel. Elisha escaped Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria. And plenty others escaped the edge of the sword. Next, the faithful were made strong out of weakness. This is one of the key phrases in this entire chapter. I don't know of a phrase in the chapter that summarizes the character of these people more than that one phrase. Out of, or they were made strong out of weakness. Who's likely mostly in view in reference to that is Samson. It could be some Gideon reference there. But likely Samson. If you know Samson's story, he was made weak when his hair was cut. He turned into a no-eyed slave as they gouged his eyes out. He became a slave of the Philistines. And though he became weak, he's made strong for one last victory over the Philistines as they worshiped together in their temple of Dagon. And he killed more people in that, more Philistines in that one event than over his entire lifetime as he depended on God. Faith is recognizing your weakness and looking to God for strength. This morning as we sang, I surrender all, I was sitting at the back thinking I want every single one of us to think about those realities that we are weak. We are like Samson strung up to a couple of pillars with no eyes, no strength, but our faith means that we depend on God for, for strength. We surrender all to the one who's truly strong. We confess that we are weak. It's a beautiful summary phrase of this chapter that you see throughout these stories. The next, through faith they became mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight. I personally couldn't help but think of Jehoshaphat. You may remember a few weeks ago when I shared the story of Jehoshaphat that defeated the armies of the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Munites, not with sword, not with spear, but with the praise team out front. You remember the halftime grambling band? Our band is out there getting it done out front. That's how that battle went down. And the passage that connects to that, a prophet and priest is sharing with Jehoshaphat and the people before the battle Here's what he says. Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, 
Thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid, do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Occasion after occasion through our Old Testaments, we see God fighting the battle for the nation of Israel as they faithfully depend on him. Another passage that came to mind is in Joshua 23.10. This is in regards to the conquest that's about to take place after they cross the Jordan. It says, One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it's the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Examples abound in our Old Testaments of God through faith, making people mighty in war and putting armies to flight. And then one that's a special treat to me is the raising of children that have been passed away. I don't know why this connects to me, but as a dad, I can think about the drama and the heartache that these two moms must have felt. This is likely referring to two ladies, one that is blessed by Elijah, one that's blessed by Elisha. As Elijah stretched himself out three times on Zarephath's son that passed away, and the child is brought back to life. And then as Elisha brings back the little kid that I call Sneezy, because he sneezed seven times before he came back to life. What wonderful, wonderful wins in the wind column for faith. I look at these examples one right after another, and you've got to enjoy them. You're supposed to enjoy them. They should make your heart sing and soar as you think about what God accomplishes through faith. As I look at these accomplishments through faith, I think to myself, I can almost consider that maybe faith means that every day is going to be Friday. Maybe faith means that I'm going to have the wind in my back if I just trust God. Maybe faith means that things are just going to work out well if I just trust him. Years ago, I remember people talking, I can't remember who made up the joke or where it first came from, but the joke about, I'm not going to tell the joke, I'm just going to hit the punchline. I would make two jokes I've told in 11 years, but I'm not going to tell it. I don't want to add number two. About what happens when you play a country music song backwards. I had to look it up because I couldn't remember verbatim, but I looked it up, and if you play a country music song backwards, you get your house back, you get your dog back, you get your best friend Jack back, you get your truck back, you get your first and second wives back. <laughs> Man, I'm telling you right now, I don't want to make light of these wins and these victories. I'm not for a moment making light of them to consider this, but as I'm are to connect it to this stupid joke. But I wonder, as I asked you the question in the beginning, what are you expecting from faith, where your mind went? Are you expecting a win? Are you prepared for something else? Are you expecting that every day is going to be Friday? What are you telling your children? What are you teaching your children that following Christ is going to mean for them? What were you taught when you were growing up? Man, we've got to let the scriptures inform us on what faith really means. As I thought about this question, I thought about that notion that maybe means faith is every day is Friday. I thought it maybe mean maybe faith means that cancer is going to be healed. Period. Maybe faith means that I'm going to be vindicated at work. And this person that has disparaged me 
or discredited me in some way, that the truth is going to come out. And maybe, maybe, in fact, if I'm faithful, I'll even get promoted. Maybe I believe that if I'm faithful, I will be blessed with a wonderful marriage that'll be easy. Maybe I'll believe that if I'm faithful, I will get my wife back or my husband back. What do you consider is going to be the outcome of faith? Man, if, the, if there was a period right there after this, these Zarephath and the Shunammite woman getting their kids back from Elijah and Elisha through God's raising them, if there was a period after that, then we might think so. We might think so. We might think that the wind's going to be to our back and every day's going to be Friday if only you trust Jesus. But the passage continues. We're going to spend most of our time this morning slowing down a little bit on these next couple of verses. The passage continues. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. These are a catalog of losses with air quotes, emphasis on air quotes. You'll understand why later. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. This phrase, some were tortured, is sort of a key to unlocking what the Hebrews preacher is talking about right there. He's talking about something very specific. And it's not something that we would have access to unless we connected to the Greek language behind it. That word in the Greek for torture is connecting to a specific type of torture that took place at a specific time in the story of the nation of Israel that's not in our Bibles. This reference to the word torture has to do with being stretched out on a frame and then being beaten across the stomach and abdomen until the muscles eventually tear and give way and you die from internal hemorrhaging as the blows continue on exposed organs. That took place at a very unique period in the story of Israel. It took place during what's called the intertestamental period. I don't know if you've ever been reading your Bible, you're sort of looking at Malachi, and then you jump over to Matthew, and like, okay, it's only a page difference, but what happened during that period? It's about a 400-year period. And in some ways, that 400-year period has been lost to a bunch of Protestants. It's not lost, it's just untold. It's untold because the story is told in the book's Maccabees in the Apocrypha. And not for a moment do I want to suggest or indicate or allude to the thought or the idea that those books should be in our Bibles. I trust how our Bible's been put together. But those books serve as historical documents for us to go back and read to understand what's been happening or what happened during that intertestamental period. Some pretty cool stuff happened during that period, at least cool and stuff. And I mean cool in the way that's things that you should know, not cool in the way that they went down. 
things that you should know as contemporary Christians that very few contemporary Christians know during the Maccabean period. Leading up to the Maccabean period, a man named Alexander Great the Great conquered the region. It wasn't much of a conquering. It's sort of like the big kid stepping out on the playground and dominating the little skinny malnourished kid. Because this area, especially Israel, after the Babylonian exile and the Assyrian exile in front of that, they were a pushover. Alexander the Great takes control of the region about 330 B.C. and he introduces Hellenism and the Greek language. He died a few years later in 323 B.C. And two different groups, that would be seven years later, and two different groups primarily competed for control. The Ptolemies from Egypt and the Seleucids from Syria. Now, a few decades later, a Seleucid in 175 B.C. named Antiochus Epiphanes. This is a name that I would hope that every single one of you would learn and remember. A man named Antiochus Epiphanes took control of the region, and he outlawed the practice of Judaism. Now, what's amazing to me is as I'm sitting here sharing this, I know that I'm sharing this with a room full of people most of which, I know there, there are some in here that have studied this period, most of which have no clue. And I would be included, except that I've studied this. I didn't grow up hearing this story of the intertestamental period. But yet the Hebrews church would have known all about it. Their minds would have made a beeline to what I'm about to share with you. A beeline to this torture so that they may rise again to a better life. This key passage in this second half of this catalog or this catalog of losses section, they would have made a beeline to this period when Antiochus Epiphanes took control of the region, outlawed Judaism, and in 167 B.C. he began a three-year persecution of the Jews that was one of the most brutal persecutions any people have faced in any age before or since. Did you know the Jews went through this? It would have made the Holocaust look charitable to put them out of their misery in a few minutes in a gas chamber. That's happened to the Jews. It happened to the people whose shoulders we stand on just 160, 170 years before Jesus shows up. This is what the Hebrews church would have been thinking about. The Maccabean revolt was a product of that. It would make a great movie to tell the story of Judas Maccabeus and his sons. In the Jews' mind, the guys that were heroic warriors, David obviously would come to mind. The number two man in a Jewish historical mind would have been, as warriors go, Judas Maccabeus, who led the charge against Antiochus Epiphanes during this period. Judas Maccabeus and his boys. Man, it's an amazing story. Judas Maccabeus fought against Antiochus Epiphanes and the Seleucids because Antiochus Epiphanes exposed the Jews to the most horrific suffering in their history. They ended up calling him Antiochus Epimenes, which meant madman. I thought what would be appropriate in these next few minutes is to share a couple of excerpts. A couple of excerpts from this time, considering this has historical documents, not on par with Scripture, but as a pretty reliable historical instrument about some of these who endured this torture 
and how they were faithful. These names that I'm about to share with you are the name in the, in the specific other story I'm about to share with you may have been the exact places these Hebrew folks went. This first guy is named Eleazar. 90 years old, he was a scribe and a priest. Listen to the account in 2 Maccabees 6. Eleazar, one of the foremost scribes, a man advanced in age and of noble appearance, was being forced to open his mouth to eat pork. Antiochus Epiphanes had this thing for pigs. In fact, he, sl- he, he slayed pigs and slung their pig fat all over the Holy of Holies. I mean, he did everything he could to desecrate their, their faith. And he made the point to try and stuff pig meat into their mouths. And that's what's happening here to Eleazar. But preferring a glorious death to a life of defilement, he went forward of his own accord to the instrument of torture. That's the rack that's being referred to here. That's the frame. Spitting out the meat as they should do, who have the courage to reject food unlawful, to taste even for the love of life. Those in charge of that unlawful sacrifice took Eleazar aside because of their long acquaintance with him. And they privately urged him to bring his own provisions that he could legitimately eat like he could do a switcheroo, take the pig meek out and put some, something kosher in. That's what they suggested. And only to pretend to eat the sacrificial meat prescribed by the king, Antiochus Epiphanes. Thus he would escape death and be treated kindly because of his old friendship with them. But he made up his mind in a noble manner worthy of his years the dignity of his advanced age, the merited distinction of his gray hair and the admirable life he had lived from childhood. Above all loyalty, the holy laws given by God, he swiftly declared, send me to Hades. That's not all he said. In other words, send me to Hades if I'd put that in my mouth. It ain't gonna happen. 90-year-old dude was a warrior He says, at our age, it would be unbecoming to make such a pretense. Many of the young would think the 90-year-old Eleazar, he's speaking of himself in third person or something, had gone over to an alien religion. Second person, I forget. (laughs) He's referring to himself about himself. If I disassembled to gain a brief moment of life, they would be led astray by me while I would bring defilement and dishonor on my old age. I'll not trade a brief moment of life for what could happen if I give in. Even if for the time being I avoid human punishment, I shall never, whether alive or dead, escape the hand of the Almighty. Therefore, by bravely giving up life now, I will prove myself worthy of my old age and I will leave to the young a noble example of how to die willingly and nobly for the revered and holy laws. Remember, this is pre-Jesus. Moses' law is all they had at this point. And this guy, man, the cost of life is going to follow him. He spoke thus and went immediately to the instrument of torture. And those who shortly before him had been kindly disposed now became hostile toward him because... What he had said seemed to them utter madness. When he was about to die under the blows, he groaned, saying, The Lord in his holy knowledge knows full well that although I have escaped death, I, am, I could have escaped death, I am not only enduring terrible pain in my body from this scourging, but also suffering it with joy in my soul because of my devotion to him. 
This is how he died, leaving in his death a model of nobility and an unforgettable example of virtue, not only for the young, but for the whole nation. An old man named Eleazar. As I read about him, it's a different outcome, but I couldn't help but think of Billy Vaughn dying so well. I couldn't help but think of Marsha Potts dying so well and so nobly. Unwilling to trade. Ah, I don't want to prolong this thing. Let's go get the better resurrection. I'm ready for it because I'm trusting the God of that resurrection. The next story is in the next chapter of 2 Maccabees. Moms, get ready. The martyrdom of a mother and her seven sons. Seven. It also happened that seven brothers with their mother were arrested and tortured with whips and scourges by the king. This is Epiphanes. And he is there on scene as this is going down. With whips and scourges by the king to force them to eat pork in violation of God's law. One of the brothers, speaking for the others, said, What do you expect to learn by questioning us? We are ready to die rather than transgress the laws of our ancestors. At that, the king, in a fury, gave orders to have pans and cauldrons heated. These were quickly heated, and he gave the order to cut out the tongue of the one who had spoken for the others, to scalp him and cut off his hands and feet, while the rest of his brothers and his mother looked on. When he's completely maimed but still breathing, the king ordered them to carry him to the fire and fry him. As a cloud of smoke spread from the pan, the brothers and their mother encouraged one another to die nobly. With these words, the Lord God is looking on and truly has compassion on us. Man, Hebrews 11, that last catalog hadn't been written yet, but this confidence, this faith, this sounds like those guys confidence in a God, whatever the outcome. He truly has compassion on us, as Moses declared in his song, when he openly bore witness, saying, and God will have compassion on his servants. After the first brother had died in this manner, they brought the second to be made sport of. After tearing off the skin and hair of his head, they asked him, will you eat the pork rather than have your body tortured limb by limb? Answering to the language of, in the language of his ancestors, he said, never. So he in turn suffered the same tortures as the first. With his last breath, he said, you accursed fiend. <laughs> I'm preaching. They're dying and they're preaching. You accursed fiend, you are depriving us of this present life, but the king of the universe will raise us up to live again forever because we are dying for his laws. Man, let that verse 35 be hit you again, hear it, enjoy it. That 35B, they were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. You hear it in these dudes. Take what you want. Disassemble me because I got something better in store. After him, the third suffered their cruel sport. He put forth his tongue at once when told to do so and bravely stretched out his hands as he spoke these noble words. It was from heaven I received these for the sake of his laws. I disregard them. Mom is watching. Man, what kind of moms could you be? What kind of sons could you be in faith? I disregard 
regard them. From him I hope to receive them again. Ah, yes. From him I hope to receive them again. Even the king and his attendants marveled at the young man's spirit. That is gospel presentation right there through suffering. They marveled at his spirit because he regarded his sufferings as nothing. After he had died, they tortured and maltreated the fourth brother in the same way. When he's near death, he says, It's my choice to die at the hands of mortals with the hope that God will restore me to life. But for you, there will be no resurrection to life. Preaching. Dying and preaching. They next brought forth the fifth brother and maltreated him. Looking at the king... He said, mortal though you are, you have power over human beings, so you do what you please. But do not think that our nation is forsaken by God. Only wait and you will see his great power will torment you and your descendants. Most admirable and worthy of everlasting remembrance was the mother who, seeing her seven sons perish in a single day, bore it courageously because of her hope in the Lord, filled with a noble spirit that stirred her womanly reason with manly emotion. (laughs) I love that. She exhorted each of them in the language of their ancestors with these words. Imagine this mom talking to her sons as they're dying. I do not know how you came to be in my womb. That's a funny way. I don't know what she's thinking about there. That's kind of funny. We know how that happens. It was not I who gave you breath and life, she goes on to say. I mean, she's, listen for a theme here. She's thinking about God as creator. That's the point of what she's getting at. Listen to what she says. I do not know how you came to be in my womb. It was not I who gave you breath or life, nor was it I who arranged the elements you are made of as she's watching those elements disassembled right in front of her. Her mind is going to God as creator. Do you love Genesis that much? (sighs) What rich truths right there in pages one, two, three. Therefore, since it's the creator of the universe who shaped the beginning of humankind and brought about the origin of everything, he and his mercy will give you back both breath and life because now you disregard yourselves for the sake of his law. He created once. He'll put you back together. Kids, sons, hang in there. There's a better resurrection in store. Don't give in. Just one paragraph left I'll share with you. It's, It's worth hearing. Antiochus, suspecting insult in her words, thought he was being ridiculed. He's sharp. He's razor sharp. I mean, whew, can't put anything past Antiochus, man. As the youngest brother was still alive, the king appealed to him. Youngest brother, one son left alive. Not with mere words, but with promises on oath to make him rich and happy. They're promising this young last lad, I'm going to take care of you, buddy. Oh, they want to win, don't they? Man, they want this thing to go their way. They promised him to make him rich and happy if he would abandon his ancestral customs and he would make him his friend and entrust him with a high office. He's going to be Antiochus's pal if he gives in. He still maybe has the the smell of his first brother being fried in the cauldron in his nose, okay? Just let that hit you for a minute. Did you know this happened between the Testaments? Did you know this happened to the Jews? Did you know this is probably what the Hebrews folks are thinking of right here? 
When the youth paid no attention to him at all, the king appealed to the mother, urging her to advise her boy to save his life. After he had urged her for a long time, she agreed to persuade her son. Sounds like it's about to go south here. But listen to what happens. Okay, I'll talk to him. She leaned over close to him, and in a derision of the cruel tyrant, she said in her native tongue, Son, have pity on me, who carried you in my womb for nine months, nursed you for three years, brought you up, educated and supported you at your present age. I guess that was an ancient custom. Beg you, child, to look at the heavens and the earth and see all that's in them. She's taking him to the creator and creation. That you will know that God did not make them out of existing things in the same way humankind came into existence. Do not be afraid of this executioner. But be worthy of your brothers and accept death so that in the time of mercy I may receive you again with your brothers. Hear that passage again. Let it ring in your ears. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. That's what you're hearing in these folks right here. Bring it on, Antiochus. Give me your best shot because I got a better life in store. I got a better deliverance, a better resurrection in store. She'd scarcely finished speaking when the youth said, What's the delay? I will not obey the king's command. I obey the command of the law given to our ancestors through Moses. But you, who have contrived every kind of evil for the Hebrews, will not escape the hands of God. We indeed are suffering because of our sins, though for a little while, while our living Lord has been angry, correcting and chastising us, he will again be reconciled with his servants. But you, wretch... Most vile of mortals, do not in your insolence buoy yourself up with unfounded hopes as you raise your hand against the children of heaven. You have not yet escaped the judgment of the Almighty and all-seeing God. Our brothers, after enduring brief pain, have drunk of never-failing life. That's good. That last brother, man. Bring it home right there. After enduring brief pain, have drunk of never-failing life under God's covenant. But you, by the judgment of God, shall receive just punishments for your arrogance. Like my brothers, I offer up my body and my life for our ancestral laws, imploring God to show mercy soon to our nation and by affliction and blows to make you confess that he alone is God through me and my brothers, may there be an end to the wrath of the Almighty that has justly fallen on our whole nation. At that, the king became enraged, treating him even worse than the others, since he bitterly resented the boy's contempt. Thus he too died undefiled, putting all his trust in the Lord. And the mom gets one sentence. Last of all, after her sons, the mother was put to death. What amazing stories that are untold. Untold, the Hebrews church would have known about. They've been tragically untold. They would have been in their minds and on their hearts. They might have been their great-great-grandparents that endured that suffering. I thought about today, you know, they have the Daughters of the American Revolution where people are connecting their story to some family member back there. People might know if their family member was in the Civil War. That's no further away than these people would have been to this event in the life of the Jews. Man, what a stark point that would have been. And it's one that's lost on us if we don't take the time to connect to their story. 
The next phrase in Hebrews 11, we're going to move quicker now and knock these last ones out. Some were stoned. Some being faithful were stoned. He may have had in mind Jeremiah. Jeremiah was beaten and put in stocks in Jeremiah 20. Later on in the chapter, he's made a laughing stock and is mocked by the public and his own family. Is there anything more painful than the mocking of your own family? Later, he's beaten again and put in prison in Jeremiah 37. Only then to be thrown into a muddy cistern, like, I don't know, stuck up to his waist, left to die. No food, no water, and the guy had a 40-year ministry and only had two converts, and it's one of those converts that comes and pulls him out of that well. He's saved yet again, then only to die later when he's stoned by Jews in Egypt. Just the phrase would have taken these people to these stories. Sawn in two. Isaiah was a prophet during a number of reigns, number of kings, but King Manasseh is the one that killed him. When Manasseh was chasing Isaiah, Isaiah went to the hill country and hid in the trunk of a cedar tree. And apparently, the, as the legend goes, the story goes, the tassels of his robe gave him away. And Manasseh had the tree cut down while Isaiah's in it. Faithful, but sawn in two. Faithful, but killed with the sword is the next one. While some escaped the sword, Elijah, for example, escaped Jezebel's sword. Uriah didn't. Not Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the prophet didn't. One person is spared from the sword, but one who's also faithful is not. John the Baptist was killed by Herod Agrippa, who also killed James, the brother of John, who also was prevented from killing Peter, as God delivered Peter from the very same sword. And all were faithful. It wasn't a matter of faith why one is taken and one is not. And the chapter ends... With these phrases, some went about in skins, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Some wandered about in deserts, mountains, dens, and caves. That's the, that's the job description of a prophet. But it's also a story of the time during the Maccabees. Running from Antiochus Epiphanes, they lived in holes in the ground. They lived in the deserts just to try and survive as families. And it says the world was not worthy of these people. The world was not worthy of these people. Humanity was not worthy of these people. Society didn't deserve to possess them, much less to kill them. And though they were deprived of everything, a 90-year-old man deprived of a nice, quiet death in his sleep, a faithful man, a faithful mom with seven sons deprived of the privilege of raising her own kids, they were more valuable than the world. The world was lucky to have them. It seems God has a special value on and potent love for the tortured, the abused, and the mistreated. There's three, three brief points, observations, if you will, from this sermon that I would encourage you to keep in mind. 
First of all, faith isn't a country music song played backwards. There is no guarantee of a win. Faith does not mean that every day is Friday. Faith does not promise that you will have the wind to your back. The same fire with three that are spared may be what cooks you well done. And God is still God and still good and still in control. The same sword that Elijah escaped from took Uriah. The same sword that took James, the brother of John, Peter escaped by God's doing. Faith does not mean that everything is a win. A couple of passages that came to mind for me as I considered this, and we had a few years ago, we considered the first few chapters of the book of Revelation, and I really began to enjoy these letters given to the churches. There's seven churches there. They get a report card from Jesus, and they're all over the map. A couple of them are super, super, super faithful. Two of them, Smyrna and Philadelphia. Both of them, he says in his report card to them, you have been faithful, but to Smyrna, I've called him suffering Smyrna. You've been faithful, but you're going to suffer. And I'm God, and I'm good, and I'm paying attention. I'm not snoozing. And Philadelphia, on the other hand, also faithful, you're going to be spared. Why did he do that? Why can he do that? He can do that because he's God and because he's working a glory plan that we may not understand at the time. I have some other thoughts of what he does with the gospel in suffering and tribulation. But he can do it ultimately because he's God. And I want you to just consider for a moment who's hearing this message. The church in Rome, maybe. The Hebrew church in Rome that's either enduring some persecution or is about to endure some serious persecution under the Roman emperors. Man, what would they be expecting if they only expected wins? Do you think they would go the distance? What would they think when persecution came and they've been faithful? They would either think, I guess I hadn't been faithful, or I guess God's not faithful, or I guess God is snoozing, and none of those things were true. If you only have a view to the winds whenever cancer comes, whenever some difficulty comes, you got no place to put it. Whenever your marriage is on the rocks, whenever your spouse leaves you, whenever you have a relationship in your family that is just so torturous that it just breaks your heart, you got no place to put it if you got no room for losses, that God is still good and still faithful. I wonder if these folks, these, this Hebrew church, if they were prepared, if they heard what he said and they were prepared for the losses as well, if that would galvanize them and steal them for what was in store. I hope so. I hope it did for them and I hope it does for us. Because you'll have your version of torturing, suffering, difficulty come. And you're called to be faithful in that. I reckon they wouldn't have gone the distance if they didn't realize that faith is no guarantee of a win. The second thought has to do with our three friends appropriately 
renamed with their original names, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Listen to what they say. The second point is that faith is called for in the wins and the losses. Here's how it went down. Nebuchadnezzar made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. Whoever doesn't fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Well, there were some tattletales that told on Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And they told the king, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these three men, O king, pay no attention to you. They don't serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And Nebuchadnezzar is hot. He's mad. He says he's in a furious rage. He calls them to him. He says, is this true, boys? Is this true, fellas, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you don't serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up for you? Now if you're ready, it's like he prepares an opportunity for them to obey him. Now if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, get ready. I'm going to give you an out here. Fall down and worship the image that I've made well and good. But if you don't worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. They don't even give them a chance for the test. Don't bother with the bagpipe. <laughs> That's kind of funny, isn't it? Scottish guys playing bagpipe back then. Don't even bother with the lyre and the harp and all that craziness. Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> We're not going to do it. Listen to what they say. We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is, this is a key word, able to deliver. He's able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. In many ways, they're saying, you know what? Whether we're saved or delivered or not, God is still God and God is still good and my faith is unwavering. He's able but there's no guarantee that he's going to cure my cancer. He's able, but there's no guarantee he's going to redeem my marriage. He's able, but there's no guarantee I'm going to have the wind in my back if I'm only faithful. And faith, you can see it in these three men, Hanani, Azariah, and Mishael, is not dependent on whether there's a wind guaranteed or not. He's good, and he's faithful, and he's able Eleazar and a woman with seven sons show us that faith in what the world would call a loss, see the air quotes, what the world would call a loss is really a win. And it's trusting that he's able and trusting that he's good and trusting that he's God no matter how it seems to be unfolding. And the third thing, it's always a win for the faithful. This quotation marks around the losses. The irony there is it's a better win than the win. 35A and 35B are like two sides. 35A, 
This woman gets her son back. Two women get their sons back. Sneezy gets, comes back, and then the other one. They stretched out on three times. Elijah brings that one back. They're raised to resurrection. That's good. Imagine being mom. How good is that? Wow. I mean, I got my son back. He was dead, and now he's back. Imagine how Mary and Martha felt getting Lazarus back. What a celebration that must have been. Hey, y'all stick around, not for the funeral, but for the celebration, because Stinky now lives. Four days stinking. We're going to give him a bath, and we're going to have us a party. What a celebration that must have been. But you know what? As good as that was, that's not the better life. That's not the better resurrection. The thing in this chapter here, in this section, this little section here, the catalogs of losses, those are the greater wins because they're receiving a better life. A better life. The widow, the Shunammite widow and Zarephath widow, both of them, if they outlive their sons, we're just going to have to have another funeral. <laughs> it's going to come eventually. Imagine Mary and Martha's chagrin when, well, okay, Lazarus is dead again. <laughs> uh, maybe we just use the same program we had last time. Just change the date. <laughs> right? Because it's going to happen again. As awesome as it was, that wasn't the better resurrection. What the world calls is a loss. That was the ultimate win. A woman and seven sons say, hey, you know what? We'll forego this deliverance knowing that this next deliverance is final and best and better. As sweet as deliverance might be right now, that deliverance is better. That resurrection is better. Eleazar says, nah, that's okay, Antiochus. I'm okay with passing on this deliverance so I can get the next one that much sooner. It's okay. Because that's the better one anyway. Man, they suffered now so that, in order that, they could have the better resurrection now. No more waiting. Apparently the best life isn't now. Apparently, your best life is then. Your best life, then. Be willing to give every bit of it up because your best life is then. Now, I'm going to land the plane. Brief thoughts, and then we're going to have our supper. God is Lord, Lord over the winds and the losses. If you get anything this morning, air quotes around losses. He is Lord over the winds and the horrific, heartbreaking, terrible losses. He does, in fact, work all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. He works all things according to the kind intention of his will. It's true. You see the faithful going through this stuff, the good and what the world would call bad. And God takes the bad and even makes it better. He's Lord over the wins and the losses. And for those in Christ, the losses are no losses at all. Just a better win. I was thinking about what this does to the gospel. In Acts chapter 8, chapter right after Stephen is stoned. If you're part of the early church and Stephen, one of your first deacons, 
you know, let's take, let's take Morris Bean out. He's one of our first deacons at Cross Point. And Greenville stones him to death. Man, where, where would we be? Like, ah, that's bad news. That's horrible. What's that going to do to us? Man, this, Stephen is stoned in chapter 7. And the guy that's holding the cloaks while that happens, that's watching the show, that's organizing the whole event, is standing right there in chapter 8. Saul ravages the churches, my heading in my Bible. And in chapter 4, listen what persecution, what tribulation does to the church. In chapter 8, verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. The very thing that we say, Lord, please don't ever let this happen to us, is the very thing that deployed them across the Roman Empire with the good news. The birthplace of the church bought through tribulation. I thought, too, about Paul, the very guy that's holding the cloaks over there. After the Lord opens the eyes of his heart, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, he's in jail, has really served to advance the gospel. Only God could do that. This very thing that nobody wants has only served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So your cancer, your tragic, heartbreaking loss of a family member that you would never wish on anybody, God can take to propel the gospel, jet fuel, your difficult marriage, jet fuel for the gospel. Don't hide that stuff. Man, let him use it. Those difficult relationships, that difficult work context, that is jet fuel for the gospel. Man, if everything's going your way and you're sharing with everybody how great God is, of course you are. You think that has the oomph and the potency that it does when you're on your deathbed or when you've lost a loved one and you're saying these words, though he slay me, I will trust him. I watched Keith McCord stand in that building over there. Some of y'all remember Keith, 30-year-old man that died right in front of us, not physically in front of us, but we watched him die over the course of months. And he stood in that old sanctuary over there and right where this podium would have been and he's all pale and ashen from months and months of chemotherapy. And he says, though he slay me, I will trust him. That did more for the gospel in my heart than had he been healed. I'll never forget it. Man, only God could do that. To take suffering and difficulty and what the world calls his losses and use it as jet fuel. So be thankful in all things, the wins and the losses. God's always at work. Let me pray, and we're going to have our supper. God, what a wonderful and difficult truth. What a hard notion. But so helpful. Golly, I'm so thankful for this second little section in Hebrews 11 that illuminates what faith really looks like. I'm thankful for this promise of a better resurrection and a better life. 
And I'm thankful for those examples that we've had lived out right in front of us. Billy Vaughn, Keith McCord, Marsha Potts. These folks that have had this enduring confidence stepping right up to that better resurrection. God, I pray that that will galvanize us. God, I pray the suffering church abroad right now, the persecuted church abroad, I pray that it will rescue the American church. That it will illuminate what faith looks like for us so that we will be galvanized to real and quality movement on this side of the globe and that you would keep us forevermore from just going through the motions, playing it safe, and just go into church. We pray for those who are suffering, but Lord, I pray more than that, that we will learn from those who are suffering and that it will steal us to faithfulness so that we will be the people of God. We are thankful for this good word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Now, supper, let's go ahead and distribute the elements and then I'll share just a few thoughts on supper. Years ago, I studied John Bunyan, his story. He was a tinker in um, England, the 1500s. A tinker is a guy that works on pots. Like, um, we have one around here, a metal, yeah, like, like that metal pot right there. That one, it comes invisible. It's been here so long, we don't know, nobody sees it. That metal pot. I actually bought that back then when we were studying him. And uh, he, uh, he thought he was the God's gift to Anglicanism. I mean, thought he was a you know, great saint until he overheard some ladies, some older ladies, talk over a meal in time of fellowship when he was in their home fixing their pots. And he heard them, they're like, man, they have something that I don't have. And it was this interaction this, or this relationship with each other and this affection and fondness for their God that he didn't have. The church was just more of just kind of a thing that he did, you know, these hoops that he jumped through. And he heard that. He said, man, I want that. And he began to be discipled by the lady that owned the house and then by the pastor of a Protestant church. And he came to faith in Christ and wrote one of the most remarkable instruments, I would call an instrument, of discipleship that I know of that a Christian could possibly have. And it's Paul Bunyan's, I mean, John, not Paul. <laughs> Paul, Paul had a big blue ox, I think, and a big, yeah, different, different Bunyan. John, John wrote Pilgrim's Progress, and what an amazing book. We have copies of it that we've given out at times, and if you ever want a copy of it, if you, I recommend getting the uh, common English version because the old English is just hard to read, you know. Unless maybe you're old English and yeah, it worked for you, but it doesn't work for me. I need the redneck version. <laughs> but the, the, the regular English would work. One of the things, though, that I enjoyed about John Bunyan, he was imprisoned, uh, was kept from his wife and daughters. One of his daughters was blind. And he had a tremendous amount of affection for his family and could have renounced his faith and gone home. But he said, I won't stop preaching the gospel. And I won't stop preaching Christ crucified and risen. And they kept him in prison. But they let him have his Bible and one other book. And that one other book, I just, you know, I've kind of alluded to this, and I'm not picking on anybody. I just don't think your best life now would have been much of a help in prison. He had, the, he had Fox's Book of Martyrs in prison with him. The Bible and Fox's Book of Martyrs. And I wonder if that galvanized that dude 
to be faithful to the end. To be faithful through and through. To be faithful enough to give an instrument to the church for 500 years. It would be one of the finest instruments of discipleship that you could put your hands on. Thankful for guys like that that had the losses in view and kept the perceived losses in view, knowing that they were ultimately wins. You may not realize it, but that's what we're doing every week. When we take this supper, when we take this, we are being reminded of what the world thought to be the ultimate loss <laughs> that we know better has never been a greater win in the history of the world we're reminding ourselves every single week faith is expensive you may survive the fire you may not but ultimately we survived the ultimate fire because of what he accomplished man let's enjoy this reminder together in faith let's take and eat faith let's take and drink let's continue in song this was a morning well spent it was a morning well spent I'm thankful that we had the chance to top of our lungs to enjoy him in song I'm thankful for uh, your attentiveness this morning um, if you're visiting here for the first time or the first of a few times it's a treat to have you and we're thankful that you shared your morning with us we don't profess to be or even aim to be um, the place you got to be there are some great churches in our town and they're different and we're okay if this form or flavor does not work with you but if this was your one stop here it was a treat to have you and know that we are cheering for God's glory and kingdom advancement through the other churches in this community there's no spirit of competition here uh, should you want to continue with us if you want to understand what we're about um, Aaron asked me to, Aaron Dell asked me to point this out to you, these little cards in your seat backs that you may have never noticed before because they just went out this week. Uh, they have a few things in there that we're about. Plural leadership. Um, there's more than just me. There are two other pastors here at Crosspoint that are elders. We're, that's what we call them at Crosspoint. Maybe different from what you're used to. It's pastors. It's elder and pastor is synonymous. There are three pastors at Crosspoint. And there's a bunch of deacons that are all working together to lead this church. It is not led by any one person. Um, small group shepherds, or excuse me, life group shepherds also have a leadership role in there. I encourage you, as mentioning that, well, that's one of these next things I'll get to. Expository preaching and teaching. We don't have talkie talks on Sunday mornings. I, I've, I've been to churches, I grew up in churches that had awesome stories and things like that that, you know... I don't dismiss that at all. God can use that. The topical sort of preaching, God can totally use that. Uh, we lean the direction of wanting to preach expositorily, which means we go to a passage of Scripture and we set it loose to do its terrible and wonderful work because sometimes it's one or the other. Sometimes it's a mixture in one sermon. Um, but we, we just set it free. And we seek to walk in what we've exposed. So I know it's work. It's, it's more work than just kind of listening to a story, but we really believe that it's worth the work. And, it, man, it fosters an appetite, or it fosters deep roots, and it seems to connect with a real appetite for understanding what God's Word is saying, what it means, what's going on there. 
Training and involving, equipping parents. I hope you heard that in this sermon. The challenge to shepherds, you got a cool opportunity in store in 2015. You got some great guys to clean up there. Follow that literary device and dig in. Lead your family in that. It might just be you and your wife. Or you might be single and you want to get together with another couple single folks and work through it. What a great opportunity to be intentional and proactive in 2015. Instead of just reactive, dealing with stuff, to be proactive. And then life groups was the last thing I want to mention. If you're not in a life group, you might get a real warm welcome this morning. If you're a visitor, I hope you do, or you're visiting for the first few times, but you might not. You know, sometimes folks might just kind of be visiting with their friends or folks that they know and might miss you. I hope. I mean, that would be tragic. But it happens sometimes. We're, you know, just... It's, it's, a, it's a fumble that happens on occasion. I'll tell you where you really connect the people, though, is in small group. If you're visiting this morning or visiting first a few times and you want to get to know what this people's like, this is a, a snapshot. The video plays out in small groups. That's where you really get to know the people, and that's where they get to know you. So I encourage you, if you're not part of a, a, a life group, I keep saying small groups. If you're not part of a life group, then uh, visit one and find one and land somewhere because it's, it's how we stay connected. Uh, lastly, on this card, there's a couple of things at the bottom. If you want more information about what it means to follow the Lord, uh, membership, life groups, things like that, you can fill that out on the, pot, on the bottom and drop an offering plate. Or at this point, if you'd like, oh, I want to do that, and nobody told me about this, you can retro. You can just do it and pass it to me or somebody else that looks like they're in charge of something. Sound booth guys, you know. They're in charge. We know they are. Look at them. Um, and then on the back, it has a, a thing of kind of summary of what we believe. And then at the bottom, prayer requests. And these will be actually prayed for. We're going to connect this to our Wednesday, excuse me, yeah, Wednesday morning, 6.30 prayer time, where, man, our conference room is stuffed with dudes. This Wednesday morning, stuffed with dudes who are showing up at 6.30 to pray for you. <laughs> That's so cool. So if you want to be prayed for about some specific matter, Fill that joker out right there, and you'll be prayed for. So y'all stand, and I'll dismiss you in prayer. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for the time well spent, thankful for our quality, um, intentional, um, really just taking our time and singing great things to you, true things about you, reminding each other at the top of our lungs about how awesome you are, and how well our souls are because of what Christ has accomplished. I'm thankful that we have a, a, a bunch of folks that are attentive enough to work through a passage of Scripture very deliberately and intentionally, not missing anything, but picking it all up and eating it, digesting it, enjoying it. And God, I'm thankful too for a people that are going to, with everything in us, seek to walk in what we've heard. God, we know we can't do that apart from you, so we ask you to grow us in faith. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Y'all have a great week. I know I've met y'all.